So at Remedy, we stand uh, when we're reading the word. It's just a, it's a way of physically marking off with our bodies that this is not just a, a, some person who wrote some book, but it's the word of God himself. Uh, so it's just simply a way of honoring it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 through 15, Paul writes this. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a je- divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel, From the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as the servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask for clarity uh, to make your word plain. Um, I pray that you would show up powerfully and apply your word to our hearts, that we wouldn't merely hear it today, but we would be made into those who do your word. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would magnify your son, Jesus Christ, in our sight, that his uh, glory, his light would be so, so radiant to us today that when we look at our own lives and we look at some of the thoughts that we may have, some of the feelings that we may feel, some of the actions that we've done throughout the week, some of the teachers and blogs and articles or whatnot that we've surrounded ourselves with, When we compare, perhaps, some of these false conceptions of who you are to the light and radiance and glory of Christ today, that you would expose our wrong thinking, you would expose our wrong feelings, you would expose our wrong actions, and you would call us uh, gently to yourself to turn away from sin and to receive uh, the free grace that you offer us, the free love that you offer us in Jesus. Father, make Jesus uh, magnify him before us today. Let us worship him today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in the beginning, going to Genesis 1 here. 
in the beginning, God created all things. And on the sixth day, kind of the climax of creation, he made mankind, according to Genesis 1, 26. He did this with all by the power of his word. He spoke and it happened, right? He crafted a man out of the dust and he blew into his nostrils the spirit of life. He took Adam and he put him into a deep sleep. And before there was sin, the Lord God wounded the side of Adam, taking a rib from him to create the first woman, Eve. She was brought to the man, and the man proclaimed over Eve, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The first marital covenant was struck up as God the Father delivered this lovely, sinless, and spotless bride over to the man. The Bible at this point records, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But the marriage was to be tested as soon as it had begun. Literally in the next few verses, chapter 3 of the Bible The serpent slithers his way into the perfect garden of Eden and softly serenades the woman with sovereign defying lies. God said, eat and you'll die. If you eat of this tree, you'll die. And the serpent said, God is lying. The serpent said, you shall not surely die. Where was the man in this story when this was happening? Chapter 3, verse 6 tells us this. And she also gave some her. And he ate. He was with her. Adam was with her. He was with her while that devilish dragon whispered lies. He was with her when she saw the tree and observed that it looked good for eating. He was with her as, the, as Satan told her, no, 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 this will make you wise. This is wisdom. He was with her when she took the forbidden fruit and ate of it herself. He was with her when she handed it to him, and then he himself ate of it. And yet when God comes to demand an answer, he's not with her. He's hiding somewhere else, right? He's hiding behind a tree. They're both hiding. Fully willing to blame Eve for the sin. Uh, Here's the summary. This woman, pointing at Eve, that you gave me, pointing at God, that's why I sinned, right? This woman, you gave me. So he blames God, he blames the woman, for his own sin. And yet the Bible gets the record straight. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it says this In Adam, all die. Because of what Adam did, because Adam sinned against God, in Adam, all die. All of humanity in Adam is now destined to die the sinner's death. The serpent has aged, but his deceptive and devious ways have remained much the same. He appeals to a wisdom that is against God, much as he did with Eve. But those who properly represent God and speak on his behalf, they lack this lusty wisdom of the world. The ones who are actually speaking for God, they they don't have this kind of wise, lofty speech that appears to be wisdom that contradicts the very things that God says. Paul writes this in his first letter, to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, he says this, And I, when I came to you, talking about the church of, the, of Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, did not come 
proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. End quote. The power of God demonstrates itself readily through the folly or foolishness of Paul's message here. And what is that folly? What's the foolishness that Paul's talking? What's the message that lacks wisdom? What's the message that lacks lofty speech? I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So our our passage in 2 Corinthians today is years down the road. Paul's writing another letter to the same Corinthian church. The Corinthians have found themselves contemplating abandoning Paul while clinging to these so-called or entitled um, super apostles. He's defended his apostleship in chapters 1 through 7. So the whole chapters 1 through 7 is Paul outlining why his apostleship is from God and that God is making his appeal through him to this church to be reconciled, come to God, right? Chapters 1 through 7 is all about that. The last few weeks, right, um, we talked about the, the collection for the Jerusalem church, this, this money that they were taking up to help this church far away in Jerusalem uh, with um, some of the things that they were, and that was chapters 8 through 9. And now he's kind of continued back to defend his apostleship over against directly these super apostles. This is chapters 10 through 12. So in chapter 11, the one that we're talking about today, Paul is going to turn his attention to go head-to-head against the super apostles. And particularly in verses 1 through 15, he's going to give us three dualisms, three contrasts between him and the super apostles. And that's how the text is going to unfold. And so we'll look at each one of these uh, dualisms or contrasts. Our first one is this. And you can go throw number one up on the screen. Bearing with Paul versus bearing with the super apostles. So the first kind of contrast is there's a, there's a bearing of the apostle Paul, and there's another kind of bearing with these super apostles. To bear or not to bear, if we want to Shakespeare it, right? Um, in verses 1 through 2, we see Paul, like a first century Jewish father, speaking to his daughter, calling the Corinthian church to bear with him a little bit of his foolishness. And again, foolishness, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he means here. In verses 3 through 4, he's going to warn the Corinthians of the deceitfulness of Satan. And that's where we're going to find our two uh, contrasts. So throw up 1A, our first contrast. We should bear with those who jealously desire our union with Christ. The kind of people we should surround ourselves with in terms of teaching and bearing with, like submitting to what they're saying, are those who jealously desire our union with Christ. And this is coming from verses 1 through 2. So he's going to write this. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So in verse 1, he gives this twofold call, right? Bear with me. Um, 
And now Paul is sarcastically embracing his label as fool. Likely the super apostles have been pointing out the foolishness of Paul. And so he's now sarcastically embracing the label as foolish because it plays into his hand. Because the good news of Jesus Christ can appear foolish because it's an entire message. It's all of salvation. All of life is about a Jewish man named Jesus who was crucified on a cross. It looks foolish on the outside, but we'll get to it, right? So he's this twofold call to bear with him in a little foolishness. He still knows nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So why should they bear? Paul's going to give us kind of three reasons here. And this is actually found spread throughout verses 1 through 5. Uh, he's going to use the word for, F-O-R, little three-letter word. He's going to use the, for, the word for three times throughout these verses. And each one that you see for at, it's giving a reason for why you should bear with Paul. So our first use of the word for is found in verse 2. Why should I bear with Paul? For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Why should I bear with Paul? Look at verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, and then at the end of it he says, you put up with it readily enough. So you bear with other people, so why won't you bear with me? Why should I bear with Paul? Look at verse 5. It says this, indeed, and you're like, wait, indeed's not four. In Greek, the word indeed is actually the same word for four. It's the same words as all these verses. So, indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. So, three, three, to summarize these three reasons why we should bear with people like Paul. We should bear with them because they're jealous with a divine jealousy for our union with Christ. We should bear with them because we're already bearing with other people who are teaching a false Christ. So why would you not bear with Paul here? He's talking to the Corinthians. We should bear with him because he's not inferior in any way, shape, or form to these super apostles. So those are our three reasons. So let's look back. Look back at verse 2 with me. What's Paul saying here? Because it can look a little strange. Uh, Paul, through the proclamation of the gospel, he made disciples at Corinth. He then gathered them together to form a local church in obedience to Matthew 28. And then in doing so, he says this. He betrothed you, the Corinthians, to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You might be like, what's going on here? Betrothal? That's a very ancient word that I don't use every day in my vocabulary. Um, Jewish betrothal. It's like engagement, right? It's like, it's, it's like that, but it's a little bit more serious than... American engagement. So Jewish betrothal, it's a kind of engagement before in marriage. It's way more serious. How do I know this? Because when one was betrothed in first century Judaism, the only way that they could get unbetrothed was they literally had to get divorced. They had to have a certificate of divorce. So it wasn't just like, no, you can't call it off like right before the wedding. You had to actually have a certificate of divorce and it counted as a divorce. So let me give you an example of this. This comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, when Mary is found with child, right? And Joseph is betrothed to Mary. So there, there's, there's supposed to be this idea they're engaged, but they're not supposed to be having any kind of sexual relations, right? And yet she's found with child. It says that Joseph was, he set in his mind to quietly divorce Mary. And then, of course, an angel comes to him and says, no, 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 this child is from God, Right? And so Joseph was actually going to quietly divorce 
married, not so that, you know, she wasn't ashamed in front of everyone, uh, because they were betrothed. This meant that they were married, but at this point in their marriage, they lived apart, and they weren't permitted um, to have sexual relations yet. Now, in Judaism, it's the father's duty. It was the father's duty to protect his daughter while the, during the betrothal period. In Deuteronomy 22, 13 through uh, 21, it gives all these kind of commands and demands that are placed upon the parents uh, in regards to their daughter during this time. Now, I'm not saying this to argue. Let's go back to the ancient Judaism uh, version of betrothal. That's not my point. My point is, is Paul's taking that background and he's using it to make an analogy for the church and Jesus. And so what's Paul doing here? Paul is saying, he's putting himself in the place of a father, right? When the Corinthians believed in Christ and claimed his name after hearing Paul's gospel, they were betrothed. They were engaged to Christ. They were tasting many of the benefits of marriage with Christ, but ultimately they were awaiting for the the consummation of their marriage at the second coming of Christ. And Paul is the Corinthians' father in this analogy, and he has a divine jealousy. And literally in the Greek, it's the jealousy of God. He feels the jealousy of God, and he's watching over the purity of this church. And the purity in this sake is, are they following after other gods, or are they simply purely devoted to Jesus Christ? That's the question here. And so Paul is basically saying this, we should bear well with those who have our union with Christ in mind. So do this kind of in your head. Be a little weird if you did it out loud. Um, Make a list of friends, mentors, or just other people that are, you know, predominantly in your life, maybe a teacher. Um, make Make a list of people in your life who have your union with Jesus Christ at the forefront of their heart, that they jealously desire to see you be more like Jesus. Thank God for those people who make discipleship their number one priority in life. So now let's look at this kind of contrast. So we saw Paul's side of it. What's the contrast here? Who ultimately threatens the purity of Jesus' bride? And you can throw up 1B. We should not bear with those who proclaim another Jesus. 11, 3 through 4. Paul continues his thoughts on guarding the purity of Jesus' bride. He says this in verses 3 through 4. But I am afraid, as the serpent is in pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. End quote. The put up there is bear. You bear with it well enough, readily enough. So here we go again. We're back in the garden, only this time Eve is replaced with the church. Eve is replaced with the church. The same old pesky ancient serpent who deceived Eve is the same old pesky ancient serpent who seeks to deceive the church of Jesus Christ. The same one. Paul here is actually following pretty closely the Greek version of Genesis 1, uh, sorry, Genesis 3 verses 1 and 13. So he's directly alluding and even sometimes quoting uh, this story from Genesis 3. So just like the serpent leading Eve's thoughts astray, from God the Father and his command, Satan is also trying to lead the church's thoughts astray as well. In this case, what is he trying to lead us from? From a sincere 
and pure devotion to Christ. The word sincere just simply means simply. Simplicity. Simple. A simple devotion to Christ. Christ in him crucified. The folly of the gospel. It's simple. It's not overly extravagant. You don't need lofty words to explain it. You don't need wisdom to understand it. It's the folly of God. It's simple. Paul proclaims here, it's not complicated. It's not lofty. It's simple. It's plain. The Corinthians and Remedy are called to serve Christ with this same simple and pure devotion. And he is our focus, not Satan and his wiles. So how is Satan whispering to the church? Paul says this, through people who proclaim another Jesus than the one Paul proclaimed. All right, so another Jesus. Paul says this, through different spirits than the one we received, right? Through different spirits than the Corinthians received. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit, right? When they believed in Christ, they received the Holy Spirit. When you believe in another Christ, you're not receiving the Holy Spirit. You're receiving a different spirit. The text can also mean this idea that it has like a different attitude, right? A spirit, a different attitude of it. Paul's gospel is one of humility. It teaches that God, who is extravagant, who made all things by his word, became a man. And think about that for a second. He was born. He had to learn the alphabet. He was 100% dependent for a certain amount of time on his mother to keep him alive. He had armpit hair at some point in time. He had to use the bathroom. Do you see how like this high and lofty God that we kind of put in our minds, the Bible teaches that this God became a man, right? And so you can kind of see uh, how this would turn someone off. And, you know, a different spirit, a different gospel would say, no, 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 that's shameful. God wouldn't do that. He's holy. He can't possibly intermingle with humanity. That would be beneath him, right? A different spirit. And what else, what else do they have here, right? So they have a different spirit. They have a different Jesus. They have a different gospel. Gospel just means good news. It's a proclamation. The gospel that Paul preached is that through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who is God become man, we have the forgiveness of our sins. And we have a, a, a way to be reconciled, brought back to have life. Adam and Eve, right? In Adam, all die. In Christ, all have life. So there's a different gospel that's being proclaimed. It's either less than Jesus Christ and him crucified, or it's more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Either way, it's a different gospel. And the irony here is that the Corinthian church threatened to no longer bear with Paul, listen to him, all the while they are bearing with those who preach a different gospel with a different spirit, and a different Jesus. So our warning here, Remedy, and this is another thing, do, do inside your head, don't, don't um, say it out loud. Our warning here is to analyze our lives. Ask, ask yourself this. What teachers have we allowed into our life? Are we putting up with those who proclaim a different Jesus, proclaim a different spirit, proclaim a different gospel? Paul writes this elsewhere in Galatians 1. He says that in Galatians 1, that even if he, even if Paul comes back to the church of Galatia, or an angel, an angel of God, if Paul comes back or an angel of God comes back proclaiming a different gospel than the one they received, let him be accursed. Jesus, there's one spirit. There's not different ones. Um, and we are to guard uh, jealously like this. 
And so let me, let me just quote D.A. Carson here. D.A. Carson says, uh, and this is very simple, human beings don't naturally drift toward holiness. Human beings don't naturally drift towards holiness. Meaning, if I let my guard down, if I'm not putting effort into my walk with Christ, we don't just naturally drift over here towards the holiness of God. We actually naturally drift another way. Uh, as the old hymn says, right, uh, we're prone to wander. Uh, so let's add this. We don't naturally collect people around us that point us to holiness as well. Our natural inclination Our atom-born inclination is to collect around us teachers that make us feel good about ourselves, not teachers that call out, Christ and him crucified, repent, turn away from sin, and submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus. So keep watch, be diligent. So our first, that's our first kind of dualism or comparison between contrast between Paul and the super apostles. Let's look at number two. This is coming from uh, verses five through nine. And this is the ultimate Scrabble word, if you can do this one. Paul's humility versus the super apostles' pizzazz, or showmanship. That's what it means. Um, I don't think there's four Zs in Scrabble, so you can't even make that word, sorry. Uh, But Paul's humility versus the super apostles' showmanship, or pizzazz, verses 5 through 9. So Paul's now going to contrast himself in kind of the way that he ministers among the Corinthian church. Uh, In this case... Uh, it, the first, you know, verses one through four, it was bear with me or bear with the false teachers. Now it's, uh, it's found in the word inferior or literally in the Greek, it means behind. And so he's going to show two different places in which he is not behind the um, super apostles. So our first one is this, uh, put up 2A. Paul is behind the super apostles in speech, yet not in knowledge. In verses 5 through 6, he says this, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior. When you see the word inferior here, it just means behind. I am not in the least uh, inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you all, to you in all things. End quote. So Paul says this, he does not consider himself to be behind the super apostles, in terms of a race, right? If we were competing, he's not behind them. They're not first and he's second right now. That's what he's kind of saying here. Mark Seifert says this about the term super apostles. This word appears here in chapter 12, verse 11, and it seems like Paul made it up. He literally created this word to describe these false teachers that were plaguing the Corinthian church. The word super means beyond measure. And so just imagine, you know, there's some sarcasm going on here. Like, you know, I'm talking about sarcasm. It's like the language we speak. And you're shaking shaking your head because you're sarcastic. I got it. You're being sarcastic. Okay. Um, So beyond all measure. The apostles, beyond all measure. I'm not in the least inferior to these guys. So Paul's making fun of them, basically. Um, They are beyond all measure. And Paul is lowly, meek, foolish, and weak. In verse 6, Paul compares himself to them directly. He is unskilled or ungifted or common in speaking, but not so in knowledge. Now, this seems to be what he's talking about. The knowledge that he's talking about is Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when he says he's not inferior in knowledge, he's not talking about uh, 
you know, rhetoric ability, speaking ability. This is a motivational good speaker. And then, oh, this is a super brain, right? He's got big brain. He's intellectual. He's not making a comparison between that. He's simply stating, I've got the knowledge Jesus Christ and him crucified far superior than their knowledge, right? And so that's here. So this is the question. Is Paul really behind them in speech? Or is he just sarcastically pitting their loving speech uh, their lovely speech against his simple message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, so maybe we could ask ourselves, what do you guys find most important in a speaker? Is having the word of God and the gospel of Christ put in front of us in plain language enough? Or do we need something else? Do we need a bit of pizzazz, showmanship? Um, maybe we need to pay more for the speaker. I don't, I don't know. Um, is it enough? All right, let's look at the second way that Paul is behind This is 2B. Paul is behind the super apostles in need and also in what he charges for the gospel. This is verses 7 through 9. Paul continues being behind. This time it is in regard to his economic status and the way he uses money or accepts money. In verse 9, you see the word need. When you see the word need, I think it shows up twice actually. When you see the word need, it's that same Greek word for behind. So he's making a the similar connection to what he was just saying. So in verse 9, you see, in need. Uh, and then he also says this, he had his needs supplied by others. So he wrote this, verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need... I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. End quote. So what does he mean here? Did I sin? Did Paul sin against the Corinthians by not charging them money for his ministry that he committed uh, to them? Uh, The super apostles apparently charged lots of money for their speaking and their ministry to the Corinthians. Now, the Bible does say this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 12, uh, 1 Timothy 5, 18, it talks about the idea that a minister of the gospel is worthy of the wages. The labor is worthy of the wages. So the Bible makes clear that the minister of the gospel has the right to accept money, supplies for his need, in order to continue being a minister of the gospel. So there's no doubt in my mind that the Bible teaches that. But Paul takes that right and he sets it aside in the case of the Corinthians. He doesn't accept money for them. He preaches the gospel to them free of charge. And so there's a couple of cultural things going on here. First, among wealthy citizens in the Roman Empire, they expected to pay for the services of others. Uh, This was a way of becoming a patron uh, to Paul. And this brought with it several cultural obligations on Paul's part toward the Corinthians. So if he accepts money, the Corinthians, by the way, generally speaking, were wealthy. So if he accepts money from them, he becomes a a, a patron, right? And now he also has some cultural obligations to the Corinthian church as well. So that's that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is this. uh, Commentator David Garland, he's continuing to, uh, about the Roman, uh, early first century Roman culture, continuing to work as a craft. Paul was a tent maker, which is a craft, right? Continuing to work as a craft was regarded as the least acceptable way of providing for life's necessities, since this would prevent you 
to have the leisure to live a civilized wife, uh, wife life. I always imagine that last part in a British accent. I don't know why, because when I think of like, I, I don't know, a civilized life. I don't know. Uh, but anyways, like continuing to work a craft was just, to rich people, it's kind of like, it's uh, a little low. So now you've got Paul who refuses to accept money from the Corinthians and he's making tents on the side so he can continue to work among the Corinthians. You've kind of got two cultural tensions uh, going on in that same uh, place. Uh, so Paul worked to pay his own way so that he could preach the gospel free of charge. One more thing. On top of all this, in verse 8, he says he accepted support from other churches to serve the Corinthians. Another slap to the face of those who are tempted to love wealthy status more than Christ. church, they tended to be in poverty way more than the Corinthian church. So he's allowing a church full of mostly poor people to supply his need while ministering to rich people. And so you can kind of see now with those three things put together, the Corinthians are kind of looking down at Paul on his nose. He then uses the word robbed, right? He uses the word robbed sarcastically to kind of continue his question. Did I commit a sin? He robbed other churches, right? The Macedonian churches came and they supplied his need. He robbed them. And he's continuing this economical slap to the pride of the Corinthians and to the super apostles. He tells us in verse 9 that he was in need or he was behind while with the Corinthians. Paul refused to burden anyone in Corinth. But at the same time, these brothers from Macedonia came and they supplied his need or literally behindness. They took care of that. So why is he doing this? Why is he refusing to take money from the Corinthians? Um, 1 Corinthians 11, so in his first letter, and this isn't the only place. I just chose one of the most obvious places. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the Lord's Supper. When you come together as a church and you take the Lord's Supper, um, that's how 1 Corinthians 11 uh, starts. Basically, the Corinthians were excluding people along social economical lines. If you were impoverished, the rich people were going ahead and eating it without the, the poor people coming in. And so they were literally looking down upon the poor and even excluding themselves from the Lord's Supper. Now, you might be like, well, what's the big deal? It's the Lord's Supper. Like, is that a big deal? The Lord's Supper shows us our unity that we have in Jesus Christ. When you come to the Supper, there's no difference between male and female. There's no difference between age. There's no difference between social standing. There's no difference between your ethnicity. There's no difference between... um, your, your uh, economical status. You are all even at the table of the Lord because we don't receive Jesus Christ based on anything in ourselves. We receive Jesus Christ by faith alone. He extends himself to us and we freely receive him, not based on anything. And the table shows that. It proclaims the unity of the church to everyone. And so if you're excluding someone from the table, you're, you're preaching a different gospel with a different spirit and it's not the same Jesus that Paul proclaims. And so it's very big. And so that's why he's, he's taking all these economical um, jabs at the Corinthian church. The Corinthians struggled with this economical church truth that I just described in the Lord's Supper um, for a long time. And so Paul is using his humility to give the Corinthians what they needed, Christ and him crucified, whereas the super apostles catered to the Corinthians' pride and called it the gospel. They catered to their money and called it the gospel. Mark Seifried writes this. 
the gospel cannot be shaped into a proclamation that is designed to match the tastes of the hearers. It is necessarily offensive or it cannot save because by nature we are against God. And the only way that we hear the gospel and receive it is because God does a work. He changes our tastes. All right, so let's go to our third dualism, our third contrast, verses 10 through 15. The boasting of Paul in Christ's truth versus the boasting of the super apostles. Boasting of Paul versus boasting of the super apostles. Our final segment were another dualism, right? Verses 1 through 4, it was the call to bear with Paul or to bear with the super apostles. Verses 5 through 9, it was showing how Paul of the super apostles, and now it's the boasting of Paul versus the boasting of the super apostles. Our first contrast is found in verses 10 through 11. Go ahead and throw up 3a. Paul's boasting for the sake of the truth of Christ. He writes this, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia, And why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. End quote. Paul's already this boasting. It's foreshadowing to something that's coming up. Verses 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 16, through about chapter 12, verse 10, is this big, huge segment where Paul goes crazy mad and he starts boasting in his weaknesses. So he's already kind of foreshadowing his his boasting in his weaknesses that's coming ahead, up ahead. Uh, But in particular... His boasting seems to include God's powerful work through his weakness, particularly to the Corinthians. And so here's how it's going to feel to the Corinthians. Paul, who's weak, mild, meek, lowly, and poor of speech, and just comes with this simplistic message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He came to the Corinthians long ago, and he preached this simplistic message, and God showed up in power. He filled people with the Holy Spirit. He brought them to change. They turned away from their sins. They believed in Christ. They began to form and meet as a local church. They did that through Paul's ministry, not the super apostles. Paul was the first one to go to the Corinthians with his team and preach the gospel. And so his point here is that in my meekness, in my lowliness, in my weakness, God showed up powerfully. Why? So you wouldn't be dependent upon me. You'd be dependent upon the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And so that's how this boasting, that's what he's talking about here. He's going around boasting around in the the regions of Achaia, and he's saying, actually, it was my team who went to Corinth and planted this church. It wasn't these super apostles. And we didn't charge them money, and we didn't take from them, and we weren't a burden to them. So he's going around, and he's saying it all in the regions of Achaia. You might be like, what's Achaia? If you Google it, if you Google it, uh, the regions of Caia is the Greek region where Corinth served as the region's capital by the time of 125 A.D. So it wasn't uh, Corinth, basically a little bit after Paul, becomes the region's capital. So all you need to know is it's the area surrounding Corinth in the Roman Empire. It's in Greece, and that Corinth was like the predominant lovely city of the area. And so when he's going around to all the neighbors and he's telling them this lovely rich city converted to Christ through a poor, meek, lowly message, Christ and him crucified, that's the brag that he's kind of boasting about, so to speak. And this is Paul's boast, and it's because he says this at the beginning, the truth of Christ is in me. The Corinthians, the social blow to their pride in hand, 
they're now tempted to say this of Paul's boasting. This is evidence that you don't love us. Clearly, you can't love us, because why would you do this to us? You're hurting me. You're hurting my feelings. You're hurting my pride. You don't love us. Paul sees this ahead of time, and he says this, And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. His answer, God knows I do, it just, in the Greek, God knows. He makes an appeal to the highest court, the highest authority, the knowledge of God. Uh, Commentator Mark Seifert says that verses 10 through 11 carry with them the formal tone of an oath. Paul jealous oath based on the knowledge of God that he still loves and desires jealously for their union with Jesus Christ. So what's the foundation of the super apostles boasting? Uh, Let's look at 3b. The super apostles boasting in the falsehood of Satan. And this is the last four verses, 12 through 15. Paul writes this. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Uh, end quote. So verse 12 uh, shows us that Paul's boasting serves to undermine the claim of these false apostles that their mission, which they boast in, is the same terms as Paul's mission. That they're the same. No, no, no. We're doing the same thing as Paul, right? And the apostle Paul here is wanting to contrast. We've come in. We have the same mission as Paul. Only our speeches are better and we cost more because we're more, you know, qualified than Paul is. We're superior in every way to Paul. So, but we're doing the same thing that he's doing. So why wouldn't you just listen to us? You don't need Paul. We're Paul 2.0, right? Paul's just coming here, and he's boasting in his weakness, and he's reliant upon the power of God through Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the contrast, the two boastings. Paul's boasting directly contrasts him with the super apostles. Why? So that they could no longer make this claim. We're Paul 2.0. They couldn't say that anymore because Paul directly contrasts himself and says, I am not like them. Pick. Choose one. Right? I am not like them. You must choose. Their Jesus is different. Their spirit is different. Their gospel is different. And Paul didn't want to be lumped in to the super apostles um, as the same kind of mission. Verse 13, Paul directly calls him, calls the super apostles. He finally calls them out. And he says, these are false apostles, deceitful workmen, distinguished disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Jesus had very similar things to say toward the end of his ministry in Matthew 24. He says this. This is verses 23 through 24. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. These super apostles present a false Christ Because they are false prophets. And they have performed great eloquent speeches with lots of pizzazz. Attempting to lead astray the Corinthian church. If possible, even the elect. And Paul, like the Jewish father, seeks to protect the purity of his daughter at all costs. So that they will be found pure and spotless on the day of Jesus' return. 
which um, Matthew 24, by the way, in verses 29 through 31, Jesus says, I'm going to return and judge the world. Um, So that's in the same context. The word deceitful here, when he calls them deceitful workmen, the word deceitful, uh, when it's used as a noun, it can, it's sometimes used as fish bait, which I, I found awesome. They're, they're, these false prophets are baiting up the hook, trying to attract people through the desires of their flesh, their Adam-like desires. They're baiting up the hook. They're attracting people to Christ through their flesh, which is a contradiction. Anyone who comes to Christ through their flesh has come to another Jesus, not the Lord of glory. And so they're baiting up the hook um, and, and trying to attract people through their uh, flesh. And Paul, however, is just simply, he's the guy that goes out into the river and he throws out his pole, you know, his, his line, he casts his line. And it's got a hook. He didn't put any bait on it. It's just a hook. And you're just like looking at him and you're like, yeah, you're not going to catch any fish that way. And he looks at you and he's like, precisely. But God will. Right? The plain, unbaited hook of the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified that's how we are reconciled to God, nothing else. When we add something to it or when we take something or we change it, what we're attracting people to is something other than Jesus. And Paul here is throwing out the plain hook. These super apostles slap all kinds of good fleshly, earthly, worldly desires on the hook of their gospel, um, and now it's another gospel, so that they can attract many to another Christ. These people come not because of the power of God, but because of their fleshly desires. And like John 2, 24 through 25, okay, he's been doing lots of wonders and signs. And these people believed in him because of his signs. And his response is this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, those who believed because of his signs. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Right before that passage in John 2, The disciples are told, uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple, talking about his body, and in three days I'll raise it up. It says, after the resurrection, the disciples remembered these words, and they believed in Jesus because of what the Scripture said and because of the words of Christ. We are to come to Christ on his terms, what Scripture, the Word of God says, and what Jesus himself has spoken. Nothing else will do. So Paul now is going to return back to his theme found all the way back in verse 3 when he brings up Satan, the ancient serpent who deceived Eve and is now attempting to deceive the bride of Christ. Uh, He connects the super apostles directly to Satan. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. No wonder, right? No wonder they disguise themselves this way. Satan disguises himself this way. Where did this idea of light, uh, Jesus coming, or sorry, Satan coming as an angel of light uh, come from? Um, Paul seems to be getting it from, well, first of all, the New Testament speaks of Satan as a fallen angel. So he is an angel. uh, So it makes sense that he could appear to be an angel. Uh, But the second thing is, is a lot of early Jews and then later on Christians interpreted Isaiah 14 12 through 13 to be the fall of Satan. And it says this, how you, are fallen, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, this idea of light, son of dawn, light. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne 
on high. Many Christians interpreted that to be the pride of Satan, the fall of that angel. So whatever the origin, uh, Paul uh, connects Satan with, you know, angels of light. Now he's saying the super apostles are like their master. They're like Satan. It should be no surprise. Why? Because Satan disguises himself, they're going to disguise themselves. So here's our call as a church. Keep watch over our life and our doctrine, our teaching. We should particularly keep watch on those we allow into our lives as teachers, our elders, our pastors, our podcasts, our blogs, our articles, other pastors that we listen to, other theologians, other seminary or university teachers, the other sociologists, all the different things that we are receiving throughout the year, Fox News, CNN, all, like all the news, everything that we're receiving, we need to keep watch. Because if we're not keeping watch, we drift towards sin. We drift towards collecting around ourselves teachers that will just do what we want instead of what we need. So keep watch. And particularly keep watch over those who come to you in the name of Christ. Because Satan loves to join the church instead of stand directly against it. David Garland points out this old story uh, from the 1500s. This is written by uh, a monk by the name Cornelius Lapide. He wrote this. Um, It's about a a guy named Abraham. While he was singing, not the Abraham of the Bible, uh, while he was singing psalms at midnight, a light like that of the sun suddenly shone in his cell, and a voice was heard saying, Blessed art thou, Abraham. None is like thee in fulfilling all my will. But the humility of the saint recognized the fraud of the the devil. The humility of the saint recognized the fraud of the devil. And exclaimed, Thy darkness perish with thee, thou full of all fraud and falsehood. For I am a sinful man. But the name of my Lord Jesus Christ, whom I have loved and do love, is a wall to me. And in it I rebuke thee, thou unclean dog. And then the devil vanished from his sight as smoke. Who are we bearing with? Right? So in the introduction, we talked about the, the first marriage, right? Adam and Eve. Now I want to talk about the final marriage. If the serpent is still deceiving and the church is the new Eve, then let us ask ourselves this question, who is the new Adam? In speaking of Adam being wounded that Eve might be created, commentator Matthew Henry writes this, and this is good. In this, as many other things, Adam was a figure of him, Jesus, that was to come. For out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church, was formed. When he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death upon the cross, in order to which his side was opened by the spear, and there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church and water to purify it to himself. End quote. The church, simultaneously righteous and sinner, now hears the whisperings of that ancient serpent wooing her to turn from Christ to another Jesus, to another spirit, to another gospel, wooing her through the many mouths of false prophets and teachers. And yet, who is our Adam, O church? Is he not the last Adam, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Will this Adam remain with us silently as Satan speaks his deceptive words to our soul? Will this Adam sit silently as we see the tree is good for food? Will this Adam remain quiet as we contemplate the tree of disobedience as wisdom? 
Will this Adam allow us to eat of sin without making a noise? Has this Adam followed us knowingly into our sinfulness? The answer to all these questions is no, he has not. This last Adam, Jesus Christ, has spoken to us through the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. This last Adam has loved us in his teaching and his life of obedience on our behalf. This last Adam has bore in himself upon the cross the penalty of our sinfulness. As the serpent whispers, this last Adam stomped his head into the dust, which is what the first Adam should have done. This last Adam has, has come to us in faith in his name, repentance, remission of sins, the imputation of his own righteousness, his relationship with his father, the power to kill sin in our life, the power to put on Christ in his resurrection life, the obedience that comes with faith. How does he provide these things? He unites himself with us by faith. He is in us, and we are in him. So hear the Savior declare over you today, church. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called the church because she was called from me and to me. We are one. Jesus Christ, whom the Father has always been pleased with, the Father has set his delight in his Son before the creation of the world, has now offered himself. If Jesus Christ can satisfy God the Father who spoke all things into creation, think about that. He satisfies God the Father who spoke all things into existence. If he's satisfying to the Father and he now freely offers him to you, can he not be all satisfying and all sufficient for us in the midst of all trials, sufferings, sicknesses, whatever we might go through in earth? Is he not all sufficient? If you don't know this is Christ and him crucified, he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and all he demands of you is to believe. Believe. And by believing in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he freely gives himself to you. He betrothes himself. And he's a man of his word. He'll come back. Let's pray. Father, magnify your son to us today, especially as we stand to sing back to you your truth and your word. Um, Give us a a love that wells up in our hearts that we might worship you in spirit and truth today uh, by faith in Christ. Magnify yourself through your son, Lord. Come powerfully through the simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.